You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to another episode of the Revision Path Podcast. I'm Maurice Cherry, and before we get to this week's interview, I want to thank our wonderful sponsor, MailChimp. With over 7 million users, MailChimp is the premier email marketing service provider for entrepreneurs and small businesses. We use it here at Revision Path, and I use it for my business, and it's really an excellent way to send emails and track their results. It also works with a lot of other tools that small businesses use, like WordPress, FreshBooks, SurveyMonkey, Salesforce, and a lot more. It's great for e-commerce businesses, and they've got some great mobile apps to help you manage your campaigns on the go. Sign up today for your own free account at MailChimp.com. Our 50th interview contest ends at the end of this month. All you have to do is leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, and you'll be entered into the drawing for a $50 Amazon.com gift card. For more details, go to revisionpath.com and click the orange banner at the top of the page. Don't forget that you have to send us your iTunes or Stitcher Radio name so we can verify your entry. We're also looking for guest bloggers for our blog. We've had some really great posts so far, both this month and last month, and we want to keep that momentum going, so send us a pitch. Just go to revisionpath.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and click the Write For Us link for more information. Now, LGBT History Month continues here on Revision Path with this week's interview. I talked with Courtney Imerman-Wallace, a UI and UX engineer in Washington, D.C. Here we go. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is Courtney Imerman-Wallace, and I am the UI UX engineer here at Blue Labs. And basically what that means is I get to design a lot of our front-end components on any like web applications we have, and I also get to build them. Okay, so Blue Labs is like a digital firm or a strategy firm? Yeah, so we're actually a data analytics and other various technology firm. Okay. So we get to, mostly what I get to do is like visualize data and think about how to put out data for people to kind of digest. Now, before you worked at Blue Labs, you were a uh, creative technologist with iStrategy Labs. What is a creative technologist? What is that exactly? <laughs> That's a great question. So basically, when I worked at iStrategy Labs, Peter Corbett was our CEO, and I don't think that he really liked the titles like web developer or software engineer, and he felt like it was kind of too restricting and didn't allow people to really embrace that creative side. Mm -hmm. So basically what I was, is I was a front-end developer, but I was so involved, all of us were really involved in the creative process from the beginning all the way through. We would sit in design meetings, we'd sit in kickoff meetings, we'd you know, give all of our input about how things would live on the web. And so he, he coined this term creative technologist because we got to be creative as well as being developers and engineers. Nice. And you were there for a pretty long time before you went to Blue Labs, right? Yeah, I was there almost a year. I started as an apprentice, mm-hmm. which was a great program. Um, I got to work under some really great front-end developers and some great designers that were really knowledgeable about user experience and, and how things flow on the interface. And then I got hired full-time and was able to really learn a lot, a lot more from some of the people there. Mm-hmm. And and I also got to do a little bit of back-end development, which I actually started to like, even when I didn't even think I would. So. Oh, nice. How did you sort of get your, your start with 
I don't want to say design per se, because I know now you do UI, UX work, but how did you really get your start with technology? So I've had a really interesting path. So I actually started in undergrad at the Milwaukee School of Engineering, and I was in the nursing program. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. And I I loved nursing. It was great, but it just like didn't quite fit for me. And I started, while I was in nursing school, I started to explore alternative medicine. And I played on the soccer team and I got hurt once. And a bunch of doctors couldn't tell me what was wrong. And I went to an acupuncturist. And the acupuncturist, I had three treatments and I've never had the problem ever again. Oh, wow. And so then I started to really explore alternative medicine. And so I got interested in acupuncture. So then I moved to Chicago and went to grad school to be an acupuncturist. And... Interesting. Yes. And so while I was in grad school, I would see patients and keeping patient records is like really, really crazy. And so what I did was I started learning about access and databases um, to try to keep records of my patients in a little bit more concise way and in a way that was like easy for me to look up patients and edit records and all that kind of stuff. And After I got done with acupuncture school, I worked for a chiropractor for a little bit and then kind of started to realize that that wasn't really for me. And so I started, I moved to IT help desk work. And I had done some IT help desk when I was in undergrad. So I had a little bit of hardware experience and that kind of stuff. So that was pretty easy transition, a little entry level IT job. And while I was working there, I was in charge of the database that kept track of rentals. So when people would rent laptops or cameras or whatever, and I started to realize that the database was so complicated that only I could use it. So Mm. if I was ever on vacation or, you know, wasn't there, then I was the only person that could use it. So some kind of front end needed to be constructed or some kind of GUI needed to be constructed to, for other people to be able to use it. So I started working with the like GUI interface for access and kind of started putting stuff like that together so that other people could use the the rental system if I wasn't there. And then when I moved to DC, I took another IT manager job. And it's there that I kind of really started to think about web development. And I actually told my boss at the time, he asked me, he was like, you know, what do you want to do? Like, where do you want to go? you know, where do you want to take this career? And I was like, you know, I actually want to be a web developer. (laughs) Mm. And he was like, well, we don't really do web development. (laughs) (laughs) But he was super supportive. We had a tuition reimbursement program, so and professional development funds. And I would always use mine towards web development classes and boot camps and that kind of stuff. And he always was super, super supportive of it. And I worked a little bit on the website for that company And then I, you know, I told him, I was like, hey, you know, there's apprenticeship opportunities available and I think I'm going to go for it. He was super sad that I was leaving, but we've actually kept in touch and he's been very supportive and I've let him know about all the different jobs I've had and when I work on private clients and that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, that's how I'm here. (laughs) It sounds like you definitely have had a lot of support, like just overall coming up that that sort of. I guess when you went on this sort of non-traditional path, like you said, starting off in nursing and acupuncture and then 
somehow kind of transmogrifying into being a web developer. Support has kind of always been there, it sounds like, every step of the way. Have you had any any mentors that have really helped you out as well? Well, so my boss, Aziz, I worked on the Global Health Fellows Program, which is a USAID contract. And he absolutely, I would consider one of my mentors. He's always been there for me. And he was really, really supportive of me wanting to do web development even after even when I was working under him, not being a web developer. And I think the other person that has really been kind of constant throughout my entire life has definitely been my sister. She lives here in D.C. And even though, like, my entire life, I think she was probably the one person that was very encouraging, like, whatever you want to do, you should do it. And she's always kind of been around, like, if I ever needed anything, anytime I'm writing a resume for a new job, she'll look over it for me help me cover letters, all kinds of stuff. And every job transition I've had or career pivot, she's never she never said anything like, are you sure you want to do this? You know, you change jobs a lot. I doubt myself sometimes, but she's always absolutely been there. So That's awesome. Yeah. Now, you said that you've done some, some freelance work. Are you still doing some freelance work now? Not right now. We're really busy right now. So mm-hmm. I'm not doing any freelance work at the moment. Now, in the past, we've interviewed some UI and UX engineers. I know that's sort of what you're doing now at Blue Labs. One of the people, actually, you may know her. She's in D.C. We interviewed her, Glenette Clark. Does that name sound familiar? No, it does not. She hosts, well, not hosts, she hosts and she puts on, she founded, I guess, UX Camp D.C. Oh, I do know about UX Camp, absolutely. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the, that's her baby, ah. is UX Camp DC, and she's there in DC. Talk to me a little bit about sort of user interface, user experience. What is the difference between the two, and why is this something that is, is so important when it comes to design? Yeah, so I love UX, and I think I love it because I also love psychology. And so I think that's one of the largest components of UX. And so UX is more like the philosophy of how users interpret what they're seeing and your ability to get them to do what they should be doing on screen. And the UI is the user interface. So it is the thing that you see. And when, in that sense, you think about how you lay things out so that things are readable, so that they're easy to find, so that they're intuitive, all of that kind of stuff. If you don't kind of combine the two about what does a user think versus like how things are laid out, people can get lost very, very easily on a screen. Mm-hmm. There are so many things, especially in 2014, we're used to seeing 80,000 things at a time. CNN does like all the tickers and, you know, and you sometimes just don't even know where your eye is supposed to be looking. So it's really important for us to think about the user's experience when they're on the page because, you know, the reality is most people are sitting at their computer. It's just them. Nobody's forcing them to stay on your site. If they can't find something, they're going to leave and they're probably going to Google something else and Somebody else might come up if they're looking around your company's site for prices or something like that, and they're not there when they maybe should be there, they're going to go to somebody else's site that's going to give them that information right away. So it's definitely important for us to think about that and really figure out how can we make the user stay, give them the information they need, but then also like take something away from that. What are some ways that people can really get into UI and UX? Because I guess when I think design and I think technology, it seems to be centered so much around 
coding and technical skill, whereas UI UX, like you mentioned, seems to be more about psychology. Is that something that people should look into if they're looking to get into these fields? I would definitely look into that. One thing that I started looking at when I wanted to get into UX was actually taking a cognitive psychology class. Um, And it's kind of just teaching you about how the brain makes connections, like how we put things together. If your eye sees one thing, is that really what you're interpreting? And it really allows you to look at things in a much broader aspect because you can, I mean, one trap that I think a lot of designers fall into is that we design something and then we know what it is and then we just expect that everyone else will know what it is. Right. Um, but I think sometimes we have to take a step back from that and really think about the broader connections that people already make. One thing that I had to really break through was I don't like colors associated with gender, just like in okay. my own personal life. I have like a personal belief that like girls don't have to wear pink and boys don't have to wear blue. I like I like neutral colors like green and, and yellow. And and sometimes when I'm designing, if if I'm representing men and women, I will try to stay away from red and blue or pink and blue because I just like have a personal stance on that. Mm-hmm. But usually by the time I'm done with the design, before I show it to anyone, I break down and I use red and blue or pink and blue because <laughs> those are natural connections that we make in our brains. And so if you're looking at visualization or data, then you're already going to make those connections. Your brain doesn't have to work twice as hard to find labels and really think about it. It's already there for you. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of... Uh, I think that's a good step is to maybe look into some cognitive psychology classes or there's so many resources online. People love talking about UX right now because I think it is kind of like the forgotten child of tech. Like I think mm-hmm. it's something that was maybe forgotten for a while, but people are really starting to notice how much of a difference it actually makes. What's the most important thing that you've learned from your work so far? Never be afraid to ask and never take yourself too seriously. I think when I first started, I I thought that you just had to know everything all the time. And I used to get a little nervous and a little anxious if I was standing around a group of people that were talking about a technology that I didn't know about. And I just would like kind of weirdly shake my head and see if I could get out of the conversation without having to make a comment. But now I think one of the best things I ever I started doing was just asking, like, you know, what is that? Because even that one sentence of, oh, well, what is this plugin? Or I haven't heard about that gives you enough to be able to Google and, like, understand and, and really be able to learn. And I think in tech, like, we have to keep learning every day or you'll just totally get left behind. So, yeah, I think never being afraid to ask if you don't know something is, is probably the biggest thing I've learned. Now, I learned about you and your work through Lesbians Who Tech. Can you tell me a little bit about that organization and how you got started with it? Yeah, so Lesbians Who Tech, I'm the city director for Lesbians Who Tech DC. Okay. And I actually got involved with Lesbians Who Tech about a year ago. I think I went to one of the first meetups. And Leanne Pittsford is the founder and CEO of Lesbians Who Tech, and she came across my radar because of some meetups. So I was involved with some other ladies who code meetups. 
and some people told me, hey, like, you know, there are these, there's this other meetup, Lesbians Who Tech. And I went and I met Leanne and she was like fantastic. She was kind of the first lesbian I had ever met that was like talking about tech. Like it was very, uh-huh. it, was, it was crazy because it wasn't really like a scene that, you know, I feel like even really existed that I knew about. So it was really great. And since then, we've had two conferences. There was one in San Francisco that brought out over 800 people. We also had one in New York that I believe brought out over 400 people. That's fantastic. We just had time to really workshop and talk about what it's like to be women in tech, what it's like to be queer women in tech, and kind of connect with people and talk about your experiences and how people deal with things at work and how they are working on educating themselves. And it was a completely different professional development event that I mm-hmm. like that I had never even been to before. So we're continuously doing happy hours and different meetups. We did a speed networking event last week where people could just come out and quickly chat with somebody for five minutes and exchange business cards and then you get to move on and talk to somebody else for five minutes and allowed people to really have a little bit of a one-on-one connection instead of like trying to dive into like the scary happy hour, (laughs) (laughs) scary happy hour feel. But yeah, Lesbians Who Tech is great. And they're, they're really doing some big things and, and trying to help people really understand diversity in tech a little bit better. So let's talk a little bit about diversity in tech. Um, I'm sure that the people that are listening are probably familiar with the concept of intersectionality. But for those who aren't, intersectionality is when you kind of have these different intersections, so to speak, between, I don't want to say forms of oppression, but it's sort of these intersections between different identities. So you can be black and a woman, or like in your case, you're black, you're a woman, you're lesbian. So there's like this triple intersectionality going on. And in those intersections, there are lots of different sort of topics and microaggressions and things like that. So if I can ask this kind of overarching question, what is the feeling or or what do you, when you think about this, what does it mean to be a black lesbian in tech? Yeah, sometimes it feels lonely. So I, I went to a conference about a year ago, and I was in a room, and, and the, the name of the workshop was, you know, the face of technology in 2020. And so all of these people are in the room, and we're supposed to talk about, you know, what does technology look like in 2020, and like, how do we do better? And so they had everyone stand up at the beginning, and they said, if you identify as male, please sit down. And so, you know, over half the room sits down. And then they said, if you do not identify as a person of color, please sit down. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, then another like third of the room sits down. And then they said, if you do not identify as LGBT or Q, please sit down. And I looked around and I was the only person standing. Oh, wow. (laughs) And the facilitator said, this is a problem. You know, like, how are we expected to make you know, one of the fastest growing industries, one of the industries that's changing our world every day. How are we expected to keep up with what the world needs if we don't reflect what the world looks like? Mm -hmm. And so I would say that sometimes it's lonely. I think as being a UI, UX engineer, I, I think about 
I, I spend a lot of time thinking about people and how people interact and how things are for people. And like one thing I think about is like, well, how do women perceive this, right? If you're building a site and your target audience are people of color, how do people of color perceive this? Like, you know, what is the psychology of being a person of color? And I think sometimes like we don't always think about that in tech. And so it can be like a lonely battle sometimes when you're trying to convey to other people that, well, people of color, black people might not think that this is saying what you think it's saying, right? Right. Women might not think this is saying what you think it's saying. And kind of representing all of those sides sometimes can get a little difficult. So I think it's like really important that we kind of step our game up as far as diversity is concerned, because all of those different people and different groups like bring so much to the table and allow us to build better products and build better interfaces and really change our worlds. So, yeah. Do you think that it's getting better in the, uh, I guess, in the tech industry in terms of, of diversity? I think it is. And I don't know if it actually is in numbers, but I think it is in mindset, which is the first step. Um, I think people are starting to recognize that they have diversity issues. I think Google obviously took a big risk by posting their actual diversity stats. But I think that they had to lead the way because people are looking to them, them and Facebook and all the big names to be leaders in this. So I think that it's getting better, at least in mindset, which I think is kind of trickling down to actual policies and diversity initiatives. One of the really awesome things that came out of the Lesbians Who Tech conference was I got to meet Sarah Sperling, who is the director of diversity and inclusion at Facebook. And learning that Facebook even had a director of diversity and inclusion was awesome. I mean, and so I think like, I think we're getting there. Having somebody that focuses on diversity only at a tech company is kind of a novel idea, right? Yeah. So I think we're getting there. I think it's a little slow, but I also think that things like Lesbians Who Tech, Black Girls Code, all of those kind of things, we have to do a little bit on our end to kind of get people involved to what they have always perceived as like not their thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I can see it's important that it's not solely uh, just on one side or the other to really sort of make it happen. It has to be a two people it has to be a bridge, you know, in order to really affect that change. So I, I totally understand that. I get that. How do you keep motivated and inspired with the work that you do? So I'm really fortunate. I work at Blue Labs and one of our like real pillars for this company is that we work on social good projects, which is kind of like my heart and soul. So it's really easy to stay motivated around here because a lot of the work that we do is changing somebody's life, right? Like we're we're making people's lives better. We're making schools better. We're making hospitals better. We're doing a lot of different things. So I'm one of the lucky ones. It's really easy to stay motivated around here because we're trying to make this a little bit better place for everybody. Who has offered you some of the most useful career advice? And what has that advice been? So I think one person that's probably offered me the best advice was probably Leanne Pittsford. She is always suggesting that I just put myself out there. Like anytime there's a speaking engagement, she sends it to me. She's like, Harry, you should go talk at this thing. Anytime there's like a competition, I think there was a competition South by Southwest to 
enter an interactive piece that you've built, she's like, you should enter something. She's always kind of pushing me to go out and speak and kind of just show my face, which I think is great because kind of like what we were talking about before, like I bring so many faces to the table, right? Like I bring women to the table. I bring being black to the table. I bring being LGBT to the table. And so, you know, if I can just go out there and talk about my experience and say, hey, I'm really regular. I don't shut myself in a cubicle all day. You can talk to me. I'm not weird. Engineers aren't weird. You know, like, Mm -hmm. then we get more people inspired. And like, it's cyclical, right? Like, we continue working on what we're trying to do, which is get more women involved, get more diversity involved. So I would say that's, that's probably the best advice that I've gotten is just put yourself out there all the time. Yeah, Leanne sent you my way when I was <laughs> looking for people to Absolutely. interview, so there you go. <laughs> what's been your biggest asset or tool, I guess I should say, what's been your biggest sort of asset or tool to success? I would say probably my two Bs. My mom always used to say that I had two Bs. I wanted to be there and I wanted to be involved. <laughs> I like that. So I pretty much anything that I get interested in, I just go hard. Like, that's it. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm doing this thing. Like, I literally was like, I want to be a web developer. And then that's all I could see. It was like tunnel vision. So anytime there was an opportunity for a meetup or to learn a new skill or anything, I was there and then I was involved. And I read a study when I was in like high school or something that people do the best in school or they have the best grades when they sit in what's called the T. So it's like the first two rows and then the rows down the middle. Uh Um, And so whenever I go to anything, I sit in the T. And most people don't like sitting in the T because if you sit in the T, you'll probably get called on or people ask you to stand up and say something. But I totally wanted, I want to be involved. So when I'm there, I always sit in the T. I want people to call on me. I want to be challenged. I want to not know the answer always. And that's fine. And so, yeah, I think my two Bs are my, my best assets. The T, I like that. I never thought about that because even now I think about when I go to to conferences and things. I don't think I ever sit in the T. I sit off. <laughs> I either sit like by the aisle or in the back. I never think about the T, but that's a, I like that. That's a, that's a good way to, to think about that. Are there any sort of particular like industry trends or something that, that you're passionate about? Is there anything you're excited about at the moment? So uh, since I work at a data firm, I'm very deep into D3. Okay. Um, love D3. Pretty much anything that I think is difficult or weird, I try to build with D3. Um, so, For those that are listening, what is D3? Oh, so D3 is a library. It's a JavaScript library that allows you, most people use it to draw charts, but it is not necessarily a charting library. But it allows you to draw like SVG shapes, right? So rectangles or circles, um, polygons, stuff like that. And it's really cool. I mean, it allows you to draw all kinds of shapes and it's better than like pasting in an image or something like that because it can scale up without Mm -hmm. distorting. So I really love that right now. Tell me what a typical day is like for you working uh, as a UI UX engineer. Yeah. So it depends on where we are in the process. But if we're like early on in the design process, most of the time I come in, I know I need to think about or visualize maybe a a certain metric, right? So maybe I need to visualize, let's say a good example, how many people, how many males versus females are in a room, right? 
And so I'll come in and kind of look at that data and then I'll start looking through, I'll just like Google different, different shapes, right? I'll Google different chart types and really think about them and what might look really good. And then I'll go into either sketch, if that's easiest for me to do, or I will write out some code in, in D3 and just kind of start looking at that data and see if it matches that chart. Because sometimes mm-hmm. data doesn't come across as clear in different mm-hmm. kinds of charts. So even though that chart might look really cool, it might not actually tell the true story. So then I won't use it. And I'll probably iterate through those a couple of times. And I like to kind of get my other coworkers that aren't designers involved mm-hmm. because they're like regular people. And so they can tell me, <laughs> does this make sense to a regular person who's not me, who's been staring at this for two hours? And sometimes they'll say, yeah, oh my God, that's so great. And sometimes they'll say, I have no idea what that's supposed to be. <laughs> so, Is there anyone in, I guess, in your, your journey, has there been anyone that might have stopped you from realizing your full potential? Because what I'm getting, you know, really so far from talking with you is that you're super enthusiastic, you want to be called on, you're ready to always help out and, and work through a solution. Has there ever been anyone that has tried to sort of squash that in any sort of way? You know, I don't really think so. Just because I guess I, and maybe there have been, but I just don't really, I try my best to surround myself with people that are always going to be supportive of me, even outside mm-hmm. of my career, right? And so in every aspect of my life, I do have some realists in my life, and my wife is really great at being a realist, but she never is, she's never like a dream killer. She is more of the, okay, this sounds great, but let's figure out how we can do this, like in a constructive way, or let's Mm -hmm. figure out how we can financially make this happen, right? And she is super great at looking at every aspect. She works in HR, and so she's great at, you know, breaking down all the different components. Um, Right, right. Yeah, I don't think that I really have. I just, I never really was like that. And I think my parents growing up, they weren't like that either. They were very much, you know, super encouraging. Sometimes I think almost to a fault, like they wanted us to try everything that I've literally just, I do things that I like doing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I can't really think of anybody that was basically like, no, you can't do this, you know, because I just don't surround myself with people like that. Are you where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? I think I am because I'm really happy. And I Mm -hmm. think that's kind of the thing that my parents really ingrained in us is like, you know, you can work and work and work, but if you just don't feel happy, then it's probably not worth it, right? It's probably not the right fit. And so I am. I enjoy working hard. I also enjoy learning. This is one thing my wife is like, I just don't understand you. But I love learning things. Like if I could go back to school all the time, part time and then work part time, I probably would because I just love learning. So I'm glad that I'm at a place that I feel like I still have more to learn and I can still grow because once I get to a point where I feel like I'm kind of stagnant and I've learned everything. That's that's when I feel like I need to move on to something else. So I am. I'm really happy. I'm married to the most wonderful woman in the entire world. We have like the cutest dog in the world. And <laughs> my coworkers are fantastic. I couldn't ask for better people. And, and I've been able to work with really awesome people along the way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm super happy. <laughs> if If you weren't doing this, if you weren't, I guess – as heavily involved in 
in tech as you are, what would you be doing? Do you think that you would still be pursuing nursing and acupuncture? What would you be doing? I would be making wine. Ah, <laughs> I remember you telling me that you were uh, that you're into winemaking. How'd you get into that? Yeah, so about two years ago, my wife and I. Well, so. Actually, I'll back this story up. When I met my wife, I did not drink wine. I just was like, <laughs> wine is for like bougie people. I do not drink wine. Like, I'm not a wine. Sound, this sounds very Olivia Pope right <laughs> now, but please continue. Yeah. So I didn't drink wine. I think one time she came over to my house and I bought Yellowtail, like Merlot or something, because I knew she drank oh. wine. And she kind of looked at me like, that's not going to work. <laughs> And at the time, she worked at a bar, and she was super knowledgeable about all kinds of uh, all kinds of drinks, wines, very nice scotches, great beers, all kinds of stuff. And she could tell you on the spot, like, she would say, what kind of food do you like to eat? Oh, boom, you would like this kind of wine. Like, I mean, she was great. So she actually helped me find wines that I enjoyed. And then I just kind of really started getting uh, excited about it because... Like I said, it's some it's a huge topic that you could learn a ton about. So I started getting really involved in learning about wines and trying different kinds of wines. And then when we moved to DC, there are a couple of like custom wineries nearby where you can take winemaking classes and learn how to make your own wine. And so I talked her into taking this class with me and we made our first Cab Sauv 2 years ago. And we've continued making wine ever since. And so last year we made a Grenache Shiraz Mouvedre. I always mess it up, but I think I got it right. And a Viognier last year. And so we're starting to think about the wine that we're going to make this year. But yeah, if I was not a developer, if I wasn't so entrenched with tech, and maybe when I retire, I'm thinking about opening an urban winery. Oh, that would be dope. Yeah. Like the, I don't know. I just thought of like this corny pun, like the world wine web or something. Ooh, that is feel, feel feel free to groan at that. I just made. <laughs> that might be good, and it could be like a internet cafe and wine bar. There you go. How easy is it to get started with it? So I actually think an urban winery is not super difficult because you're making small batch wine, and you're probably also supplementing with other wines that you haven't made. So you can have, you know, a pretty healthy wine list. I think it's fairly easy to get started. I think the biggest challenge in D.C. is real estate. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any plans for the rest of the year? Anything you're working on? Yeah, we have a couple of big projects. We do some political projects. So right now at our office, it's kind of crazy. After November 4th, it'll be a little bit calmer (laughs) around here. But yeah, I mean, we're... We're getting ready for the holidays. Other than that. All right. Where do you see yourself in the next, say, five years or so? Yeah. So I have a vision board that I like to write things on. And I have like short, medium and long term goals. And I think, you know, eventually I would like to be a creative director, kind of being able to do a little bit more UI UX on a much larger scale and kind of oversee lots of different projects and also kind of guide other people that are going through, you know, what I've been through. I love kind of helping out other people. And this year we worked with Code for Progress. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard about Code for Progress, but they're a nonprofit here in D.C. that takes people that are traditionally in like 
underserved populations or communities and teaches them how to code and then helps them find jobs and they actually pay them while they're learning how to code. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so we did some coaching with Code for Progress. And yeah, I would really like to kind of be in a supervisor position where I can kind of still mentor and coach other people, but not lose all of my designer tasks. And now just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you online? Sure. So you can find me at Wallace.com. So I have the longest last name in the world. But it's E-I-M as in Mary, E-R, M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, Wallace, W-A-L-L-A-C-E dot com. And you can also find me on Twitter at Courtfolio. So C-O-U-R-T-P-H-O-L-I-O. Sounds good. Courtney Imerman Wallace, thank you again so much for talking with us. I think that a lot of people really get a better idea about what UI and UX is just based on what you said, but also just learn more about you as a person. There's this this enthusiasm that I can tell that you have for your work that really just shines through even when you're, you know, talking about making wine or something like that. So thank you again so much. I really appreciate Maurice, it. Maurice, thank you so much for having me on. This was awesome. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Courtney Ironman Wallace, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, MailChimp. MailChimp sends out over 10 million emails each month. They've also got a bunch of helpful resource guides and an experts directory if you need more advanced help. Sign up today for your own free account at MailChimp.com. Leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio and get entered to win a $50 Amazon.com gift card. Details are at revisionpath.com. Just click the orange banner at the top of the page. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing here, the podcast, the interviews, the blog posts, we could really, really use your support. Go to revisionpath.com forward slash donate to help out. Leave a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level to show your ongoing support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.